0: All right, men, let's pray. Oh, God, we thank you for your word. Please, God, speak to us today through your word. May we hear it. May we believe it. And may we be changed by it. We ask for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as you guys know, the single most impactful thing that has been happening to me this semester... From RCI in my life and the study of God's word, particularly the book of Esther, is the doctrine of the providence of God. There is, it, it is like the scales have been removed from my eyes. For the first time I'm seeing it afresh uh, with new eyes, this glorious doctrine of God, that every single thing has been meticulously purposed and done by the hand of God. And it's this providence which is one of the most comforting, delightful, and praiseworthy doctrines in all the scriptures. And it's this doctrine that virtually screams itself off the pages of this obscure little book in the Old Testament called Esther. So we're going to be looking at Esther chapter 6 today if you want to flip there. And then just a few comments before we look at this text. There's really two pieces of background information that... I think are critical to understanding uh, the book of Esther, but then also as we look at chapter 6. The first is this, that Esther was written to a post-exilic community, a Jewish community, and second, that the name of God is omitted and it's omitted purposefully in the book of Esther. And If we have these two things at the forefront of our mind, uh, the reason Esther finds its way into the canon becomes clear. And the reason that we need to study and we need to hear from the book of Esther becomes uh, even clearer, I think. So before we get to the passage, let me just set the, the setting for us first because it is historical narrative. So we're in the city of Susa, which is the Persian capital. And our main characters are Esther, the divine instrument, Mordecai, the hero, King Ahasuerus, God's gullible pawn, and Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And brothers, lest we forget this book, the real main characters are God, the invisible characters, God and Satan. And they are moving real kings and real queens and real noblemen like a chess game. And so the the plot goes something like this that sets us up to our passage. We got King Ahasuerus removes Queen Vashti from royalty because she refused to show herself off to the king and his nobles. And it it just so happens that the the new queen of the entire Persian Empire is this little Jewish orphan named Esther. And during her selection process into the the, the harem of the king, Mordecai, Esther's cousin and caretaker, keeps a close eye on his cousin by hanging around the king's gate. And it just so happens that Mordecai overhears an assassination plot against the king. Mordecai tells Esther, Esther tells the king, the king is spared, and now Mordecai has a divine favor which will be cashed in uh, on a late night, um, as we see in our passage today. And then it just so happens that Mordecai refuses to bow down to Haman, the enemy of the Jews, and now Haman hates Mordecai, and by association he hates the Jewish people. And out of his anger, Haman declares this edict to all of the Persian Empire, that the Jews must be killed and annihilated. And so it's here that we find our conflict that God's people are on pace to be annihilated by Haman, the enemies of the Jews. And so with the counsel of Mordecai and Esther, or with the counsel of Mordecai, Esther goes to the king at the risk of her life. And it just so happens that rather than being killed, she finds favor. And it just so happens that Esther postpones her request for sal- for the salvation of the people. Not just once, but twice does she not request the salvation of the Jews. But it's in between these uh, seemingly miscommunications from Esther in which we find chapter 6 and learn about Haman's diabolical plot to kill Mordecai. And this is the drama that immediately precedes chapter 6 where God begins this great reversal uh, of the fate. So let's go to the word Esther chapter 6. I'll read it here and you can follow along uh, as we go. We're going to read the whole chapter today. Fourteen verses. So hear the word of the Lord. On that night the king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles. And they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. And the king said, Who who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. So Haman came in. And the king said to him, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and whose head a royal crown is set and let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes, the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned." So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Verse 12, Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh told him, If Mordecai before whom you have begun to fall is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. The word of our Lord. So so imagine for just a moment that you are... uh, a Jewish boy in the post exilic community and you go up to your dad um, and you're living outside the promise Land. you say dad is Yahweh still our God are we still a part of the covenant community I don't see him I haven't heard from him I've never even seen the promised land I don't even know where the temple is located or have seen a sacrifice it just seems like everything goes the way of our enemies is Yahweh still at work for us? And the Jewish dad responds and says, son, do you remember the story of Mordecai and Esther and Haman? And the son responds, well, no, could could you tell me? And after the father reads Esther to the boy, he reminds him, don't you see, even when you don't see Yahweh, and even when you don't hear him, he is at work for us, trust him. And 2,500 years later, the message is still the same for us brothers. Even when God seems to be missing and everything appears to be working towards our enemies exaltation, the message of Esther in Esther chapter 6 is here to tell us God is still providentially at work with the purpose of reversing circumstances for the humiliation of his enemies and the exaltation of his people. and And that's the thrust of this whole story and the main point for us today. God is providentially at work, reversing circumstances for the humiliation of his enemies and the exaltation of his people. Now with the time we have left, what I want to do is just show you where this proposition shows up in this text today. So the first point uh, that I have for you guys today is God is providentially at work. Now before we go to the text, I just want to Briefly answer this question, what is the providence of God? Um, And I read through every uh, major reformed catechism, and uh, I picked my favorite one, which is from the Heidelberg Catechism, which I think this is maybe two bonus points uh, today. So question 27, it says, What do you understand by the providence of God? Answer, the almighty and everywhere present power of God whereby as it were by his hand he upholds heaven and earth with all creatures and so governs them that herbs and grass rain and drought fruitful and barren years meat and drink health and sickness riches and poverty indeed all things come not by chance but by his fatherly hand and I think that last line really hits the bullseye of the doctrine of the providence of God all things all things Come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. John Piper, in his huge book, The Providence of God, says this Providence is God's purposeful sovereignty. And he says it yet another way, which I think is really helpful. He says, God doesn't just know the future, God does the future. And it's God's providence which literally is doing the future. And in these 14 verses, we see God's providential work literally all over the pages like i said earlier it screams itself off this text in verse one we can see by god's providence the king has insomnia and cannot sleep the very reality that he woke up in the middle of the night was not by chance but by the fatherly hand of god with purpose in verse two we can see by god's providence mordecai's deed was even recorded Um, From my estimation what I can tell from the text, it's almost five years later that this deed is then cashed in, um, unbeknownst really to Mordecai's knowledge. By God's providence, Haman enters the court literally at just the right time. He's on his mission to go hang Mordecai on the gallows, uh, but God has a different plan. By God's providence, the wise men in Zurich reveal Haman's fate in verse 13. And by God's providence, the eunuchs arrive just after this prophetic word to bring Haman to the second feast. God's fingerprints are all over this text. And and it's all over your lives. Um, But if you guys have ever seen a, a window pane and you have small children or you did this too and you put your fingerprints all over it. Uh, At at one angle, you can look straight on and and totally miss the the fingerprints. But if you take just one step over and turn your head a little bit, you can see that it's covered. And brothers, God's providence is the same way. It is there. His fingerprints are literally everywhere. And I wish I had more time because I would tell you story after story after story from just this semester where I've seen this happen and it's just because I've tilted my head just a little bit and I can see it so clearly and it is praiseworthy. So point number two, God is reversing circumstances. Uh, In verse 2 we see Mordecai's deed goes from being forgotten in the deeds of the Chronicles to now being rewarded by the king. Haman goes from Mordecai's death sentence to literally Mordecai's cheerleader, which we'll get into the humor of God in a little bit. Uh, But Mordecai's fate goes from being humiliated to being honored. Haman was walking in uh, to the king's court to hang uh, Mordecai on a gallow. Uh, which from the way I understand it, a gallow is essentially a huge pole. Um, but the top of it is sharp enough to, to pierce flesh. So uh, if you just think of a telephone pole, it's about 75 feet high. Um, he's trying to go take Mordecai to put him on uh, this gallow for the whole city to see that you do not mess with Haman. But obviously God reverses that circumstance as we see in the text. Um, And just when you think uh, Haman has Mordecai right where he wants him, God turns the table and reverses the outcome. And point three, God humiliates his enemies. Haman is on a mission to dress Mordecai on a gallow, but instead as we see, he literally dresses Mordecai in the king's robes and clothes. Haman thinks he is telling the king of an ensuing honor that he is going to receive. But instead, the king uses it as an idea to bless Mordecai and exalt him. Haman ends up parading Mordecai around the city saying, Thus shall it be done to the man the king delights to honor. And we see the humor of God in all of this, reversing the circumstances and flopping Haman uh, on his head. Haman literally runs home crying like a little schoolboy, and Haman's own wife and wise men pronounce his coming death and humiliation. Imagine that for a moment. (laughs) Your wife pronounces your own judgment on your head, and as we see later in chapter 7, it's exactly uh, what happens. It's like, Haman, we love you, but if Mordecai is one of God's people, you're screwed. (laughs) That's the message. Haman, we love you, but if, if, if Mordecai is, is, is a person of Yahweh, of his covenant, you stand no chance. We love you, but we're sorry. And in James 4, 6, it says that God opposes the proud and he will, without a doubt, humiliate them in this life and also in the life to come. Point number four, God exalts his people. Mordecai is a Jewish exile in a foreign land and he ends up being paraded around on the king's horse wearing the king's robes with the king's crown and his own arch nemesis Haman is his herald proclaiming honor to Mordecai and we know that from if you read the rest of the book of Esther which you guys are familiar because we studied this semester Mordecai finished at the very end in chapter 10 Uh, ranked only second to the king and a lot of people talk about Esther as the hero but I really believe that Mordecai is the one who is meant to be exalted in this story. And it's Mordecai's exaltation in chapter 6 which is the preview of the future exaltation of the Jewish people at the end of Esther. The book literally ends with the the Persian people and those in this uh, empire claiming themselves to be Jews because they're fearful of Mordecai and the Jews themselves. God exalts his people. Now, I want to remind you, as we finish, that God has been in this business since Genesis 3.15, and perhaps even in the primordial fall, um, but for sure Genesis 3.15. So no matter where you go in the history of God's people, it can be said with absolute certainty that God is providentially at work reversing circumstances to humiliate his enemies and exalt his people. It can be seen with Joseph and his brothers. It can be seen with Moses and Pharaoh, David and Goliath. It can be be seen with Elijah and the prophets of Baal. But as you men know, it is most clearly seen with Jesus Christ and our threefold enemy and his threefold enemy of sin, death, and Satan. From the garden all the way to Calvary, God had been meticulously governing every single detail so that at the proper time, Jesus would be delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Through his active obedience, Jesus is exalted as the righteous one. Through his passive obedience, Jesus is exalted as the spotless lamb of God. Through his resurrection, Jesus is exalted as the firstborn among many brethren. Through his wilderness temptation, Jesus is exalted as the true and better Adam and the true and better Israel. Through his second coming, Jesus will be exalted as the divine warrior king. And through all this sin, death and Satan have been disarmed. They've been put to open shame. They've been utterly humiliated. And at his second advent they will be fully and finally destroyed. And here's the good news for us. It's through our brothers, it's through our union with Christ that our circumstances have been eternally reversed. We have now been exalted as adopted sons of the Most High. We have been exalted as co-heirs with Christ. And our greatest enemies have been brought to everlasting shame. And so, in closing, my single application and exhortation is really this. In every hour, in every minute, in every joy, in every trial, in every heartache, The exhortation is to believe this, to believe it, that there's not a single accident in our lives. Every single thing has come about not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Everything, everything has sovereign purpose. So whether it's a scratch on your back or your daughter wakes up at two in the morning and your car alarm goes off. or you're mourning through a miscarriage or you're confused about an uncertain future and what you're supposed to do, whether you're haunted by something from your past, whether you are facing the daily agony of a soul-sucking illness, and you're tempted like I am to question your God like a small child, are you still my God? I, I don't see you in this. Everything seems to be going the wrong way. Yahweh, are you still at work for me? My exhortation is to remember this little book of Esther, to remember Mordecai and Haman, to remember God's pervasive providence, to remember your exalted Savior, to remember and believe that God is providentially at work to reverse your circumstances for the humiliation of your enemies and your exaltation. So, let's pray. Heavenly Father, what good news this is for us. That in every little thing, you are at work and it has purpose. It has meaning. And we see um, right now just a glimpse of your providence at work. And Lord, we pray that we would see it more fully, God. And we trust you and believe that it is your providential hand that is at work to reverse our circumstances our trials and our sorrows to humiliate all the enemies are in our lives mostly our sin death and satan and that we will one day be exalted with you lord come quickly please and do that we ask in jesus name amen